Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, it looks like there's going to be an early general election in Britain. The government are going to scrap the ill-fated and foolish Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. Next week, it will go through Parliament just like that. It hasn't a friend in the world, although the House of Commons was unanimous for it when it was passed. And having cleared that obstacle, what remains uh, to stop Boris Johnson calling an early general election. Certainly not the performance of the leader of the opposition. Boris Johnson, if he calls a khaki election, re-elect me as Winston Churchill revisited, will sweep the boards. He will sweep the country and the Conservatives will be in for another long four- or five-year term. No doubt that will come up in the course of the show, as will Boris Johnson's abject performance in the United Arab Emirates in the last few days. He was in Dubai on his knees in front of the royal dictatorship there, begging them for more oil production. They didn't tell him or did they, that P&O, a Dubai-owned firm that operates many British ferry services, including the lucrative ferry service across the English Channel, was the very next day going to sack its entire workforce and hire agency labor at knockdown prices with no conditions the very next day at two hours' notice, the workers, many of whom had worked there for decades, were given two hours to get off the ship. If it had been in France, the crew would have taken over the ship in an act of righteous piracy. Some of the ships would be on fire in the English Channel right now, and the workers would be in command of all P&O's vessels, but the British workforce are not French. Or are they? Are they getting there? Will the British trade unions rise up and defend what is the most egregious and large-scale fire and rehire operation since the British Labour Party sacked all of its workers and rehired agency workers in their place? I'm not making that up. One of many reasons why Keir Starmer will be no more just a week or so after a British general election, which I confidently now expect this year, maybe even in the summer of this year. But the main burden of my remarks are, as I signaled at the beginning, Salem went intergalactic when the Space Foundation excised the name of Yuri Gagarin 
from the annals of interplanetary travel. This brave and beautiful man who died in 1968 had to be airbrushed from the annals of the space age because when he was alive in 1968, he was Russian. This on top of the cancelling of Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky and Chinese cats and Sergei and Alexander and their little child Oleg and the dancers from Come Dance With Me and Formula One drivers and brilliant lawn tennis players and I could go on and on and on, is a sign of the madness uh, to which the so-called Western world, in truth the periphery of Eurasia, where 10% of the people of the world live and only 3% of the world's children live, has gone completely mad. I stopped at a motorway service station uh, today uh, where, quite uh, surprisingly, they've never done it for any other cause or any other war or any other victims, the forecourt had been taken over by people waving large Ukrainian flags. And a group of the local Rotary Club were collecting money in buckets, even though hundreds of millions of pounds have been donated in cash uh, to the people of Ukraine. Houses have been opened all over Europe for them. Householders rewarded far more richly than you'd get for opening your house to a homeless British veteran on the streets because you'd get nothing for that. Despite the fact that tens of billions of pounds have been transferred from the taxpayers in the United States and in Europe to the Ukrainian Treasury, there was a group of old buffers collecting money in buckets. I stood watching them for 10 minutes. In that 10 minutes, precisely two people put money in the bucket. So maybe the public is showing more sense than the authorities, the football authorities, the television channels, the newspapers, the government, the opposition, all of the organs of the British state have erupted in a frenzy of war propaganda, a kind of war psychosis that has not been seen in this country for the best part of 40 years. And I'll come back to that number because I have a different view to some as to why that is the case. But the war propaganda, the cancellation, deplatforming, the defenestration, the sackings, uh, the complete veil of secrecy which has descended over the war in Ukraine so that the official organs can seek to persuade you that Ukraine is winning the war, if only we'll give them more mercenaries, more money, more weapons, uh, Russia will be defeated in the war, is serving nobody's interest, not the taxpayer in the West, uh, not the general public who have a right to know what is happening in the world, and certainly not the Ukrainians, because the truth is, of course, the precise opposite. 
if Russia had wanted to end this war in the way uh, that Britain and the United States ended, the war they launched 19 years ago this very day, I refer, of course, to shock and awe in Iraq, well, already two or 300,000 civilians would be dead. There would be scarcely a building left standing. Neither of these two things is true in Ukraine, though how could you know? Because you have been forbidden to see what is actually happening. What you're getting instead is hoax stories and hoax pictures. Pictures from Belgrade, which are said to be from Kharkov. Pictures from Beirut, which are said to be from Lviv. Pictures from anywhere in the world, Baghdad, Yugoslavia, anywhere in the world that we have been at war in the last 20 years are shown to you as pictures from the war in Ukraine. But they are not. And one day uh, you will know the truth. But they want to stop you from knowing the truth for as long as possible to continue this gigantic psyops that they have led you over the cliff as a result of. Uh, the truth is uh, that if Russia wanted to end the war, it would already have been ended. Russia does not want to occupy uh, the great cities of Ukraine. It does not want to massacre the civilian population of Ukraine. They were once, uh, for hundreds of years, the same country. Russia has limited war aims, or it did at the start of the war. The longer the war goes on, the more the danger that the war aims will have to begin to change. But the limited demands, as Lavrov put it, were merely for the recognition of the eastern part of the country, the Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian part of the country, uh, to have autonomy. They could have remained within the state of Ukraine. All they wanted was autonomy. Ukraine signed that. France and Germany guaranteed it. The Security Council guaranteed it. All they wanted was for the people of the eastern part of Ukraine not to be slowly massacred, as they have been over the last eight years. 14,000 of them have been massacred. People constantly say to me, why aren't you trying to stop the war? I've been trying to stop the war for the last eight years when most people had averted their eyes away. Most people didn't give a toss because they were the wrong kind of Ukrainians that they were slaughtering there. The black hundreds of the fascist Nazi militias and battalions of the official Ukrainian army that we are arming and funding and propagandizing for were crucifying people burning them at the stake, torturing people, seizing people as human shields, taking whole villages, towns, even cities like Mariupol, hostage, so that their power and their ability to wage a war of attrition against millions of Ukrainians who didn't think like them 
about the coup in 2014, organized to the nth degree by the United States of America and the European Union, so that they could continue their killing fields in the east of Ukraine. That's all that Russia demanded at the start of the war. And now they are very comfortably in a position to make sure uh, that all of these things happen. As a matter of fact, they're in a position to close uh, the pincer and create a giant cauldron where 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers will have no choice but to surrender, leaving the far west of the country, beyond the river Dnieper, uh, unable to resist any Russian action that took place uh, thereafter. Unless, of course, World War III is going to start and NATO moves in. The weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine now will shortly be in the hands of the Russian armed forces. Where's the sense in that? Unless it is your intention to fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood, the people of Ukraine are being cruelly abused by NATO for NATO. Read the United States of America, who are using them as cannon fodder in a war that can, as I say, only end one way. What of the United States of America? Well, in the run-up to the presidential election, allegedly won by Joe Biden by a handsome margin, a story emerged which polling suggests would have altered the outcome by a clear 10% of the vote or more, which would have meant that Donald Trump was the president of the United States now and not the quite evidently senile Alzheimer patient, Joe Biden. What was that story? That story was that a laptop unbelievably left in a repair shop by the first son of the President of the United States, Hunter Biden is his name, had contained material on it so horrific uh, that Hunter Biden should be in a penitentiary for the rest of his life. The first son of the United States of America is revealed in that laptop as a sick pervert with a taste in child pornography. He is revealed as a sick drug addict addicted to crack cocaine. So much, so bad. You could say his father's not responsible for the sick practices of his son. But there's other stuff on the laptop too. You see, Hunter Biden was not just up to his neck in vice and class A drugs. He was up to his neck in business in Ukraine, in Burisma, the oil and gas company in Ukraine, which is where this whole sordid story of the Ukraine begins. People don't want you to know that they moved mountains 
to make sure that you did not know that. They banned the newspapers who uncovered the story. They deplatformed them. They took them off Twitter, off Facebook. 51 intelligence officers of the United States, 51, testified that this laptop story was Russian disinformation. That the big guy referred to in documents on the laptop who had to be satisfied financially in the negotiations between Hunter Biden and the oligarchs of Ukraine. The big guy could not have been the vice president of the United States as was Joe Biden when the coup that overthrew the elected government in Kiev took place. The big guy couldn't have been Joe. Hunter couldn't have been the guy extorting millions of dollars from the oligarchy in Ukraine. This was all Russian disinformation until it wasn't. The New York Times this week published a story epochal in its importance in which they finally confessed that the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story had been wrong. Uh, that the material on the laptop had been authentic, that Hunter Biden was a sick, sexual criminal, drug addict, and up to his neck in corruption in the Ukraine, and that the whole sick story of the coup and everything that has happened since was ineluctably, inextricably linked to what must now be called the Biden crime family. I've got to tell you that if Americans knew, as they will, slowly but surely, that Donald Trump had been right when he said, Joe Biden is a criminal, and you, the news media, are also criminals for failing to report it. Donald Trump was right. Imagine that. Trump, a passing stranger with the truth. Trump himself, hardly a paragon of virtue either on the sexual front or on the corruption front. Donald Trump was the one telling the truth. The Bidens, who gave you their word as, as a Biden, were lying. The intelligence community was lying. The deep state in the United States was lying. The Democrats were lying. CNN was lying. The media was lying. And Donald Trump was telling the truth. Just imagine if that story in the run-up to the presidential election had not been suppressed, how different the world would look today. Well, there's the first poll of the evening. Should Hunter Biden be in jail? A, yes. B, no. It's a simple question, really. You can vote on my uh, Twitter account, at George Galloway, on my YouTube channel. 
And if you're on the YouTube channel, please subscribe to it or on my Telegram channel. Please follow me on Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway. And if you're watching on Facebook, please, please, please share with everyone that you are in contact with. My next guest, or first guest, is possibly the bravest man in the world today. He's the man that told us what was really happening whilst walking and talking in the streets of a Kharkov that was at the time tightly in the grip of the black hundreds of which I have spoken, of the people you'll see on videos all over social media right now torturing people, men, women, even children in broad daylight and filming themselves doing it and proud of the way they are whipping people whom they have tied to a tree and God knows what happened to those people afterwards. About my first guest, Gonzalo Lira, actually on camera told the truth of what was happening and placed the blame squarely where it belongs for the situation in Ukraine. He joins me now uh, from Kharkov in Ukraine, uh, but he can't be on camera. He's a brave man, but he's not a stupid one. But I'm very glad and proud that he's on the mother of all talk shows. Gonzalo Lira, welcome uh, on board the show. Uh, give us an idea of you, if you will, of the current state of play in your city. Well, first of all, George, thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's very much appreciated. I, thank you. And your kind words, uh, I think that you overstate bravery and certainly intelligence. Because in a smart man, would he be in this position? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm in Kharkov. I'm in the center of the city. And uh, yeah, today, as a matter of fact, I did a little tour of it. And it's... Um, the long and short of it is that the at this time, uh, we're a little bit over almost four weeks into this invasion, three and a half weeks, and it's clear that the um, Russians are winning. And the way that they have been conducting this war is more or less what I said at the very beginning of this conflict, which was the Russians don't seek to destroy Ukraine. They seek to capture it, capture it whole and as as with as little damage as possible, given the circumstances. And the other thing, too, is that they are trying to capture the Ukraine army. Now, that might not seem like what they're doing to people who don't understand military matters, but the way that the Russians have been conducting this war, it's clear that they, their intention is to capture both the country and the Ukrainian armed force. And within the Ukrainian armed force, there are the, uh, quite frankly, the fascist element, um, and, and, and I do not say that lightly. Uh, you know, there are many people who just, uh, you know, accuse anybody that they don't like of being a fascist. I mean, last I heard on Twitter, J.K. Rowling is a fascist because of, uh, of her opinions on, on, on various matters. No, these are actual fascists and they are proud of it. And uh, these fascists were instrumental in the 2014 coup d'etat. And after 2014, they were supposedly disbanded, but what, what actually happened was that they were absorbed into the Ukrainian armed forces at all levels, at all, in all units. They weren't discrete units 
uh, within the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. There are certain battalions, the uh, famously the Azov Battalion and the Aidan Battalion, that are independent units. But for the most part, these uh, fascist elements are spread out throughout the Ukrainian armed forces. And these are the people that the Russians uh, very badly want to take out. Uh, they want to preserve the Ukrainian armed force for later, because it's very clear that the Russians have no intention of conquering and absorbing Ukraine. They want it to be an independent state, but simply friendly to them, friendly to, to Russia. And by the way, uh, my commentary on in so far as this conflict is concerned, I have to emphasize this point, if you if you will allow me. My, my interest is to make this conflict as short as possible with as little loss of life as possible. And that's why I try to be as realistic as possible, because I think that what happened is that the Ukrainian leadership, the EU and the United States and NATO, they led the Ukrainian people down the garden path, the, the primrose path of believing that Ukraine would one day join NATO, join the EU, and that once that happened, they would all be rich and happy and it would be a wonderful life. And because of this, uh, they goaded the Russians. The Ukrainian government goaded the Russians, and it got to a point where the Russians realized that no promise made by the West would ever be fulfilled, you know, specifically the Minsk agreements that were signed in 2014 and, and were never fulfilled, and and the, the uh, Zelensky regime and the previous uh, regime would stretch out and just sort of like ignore and just not do what was supposed to be done vis-a-vis -vis the agreement. And so the Russians realized this on the one hand, and on the other hand, they realized that the Ukraines and what is appearing now to be the trigger for this conflict, the Ukraines seem to have been on the brink of invading the Donbass. Uh, and they had amassed their army on the east, on the uh, right on the contact line. And remember when the United States and Europe kept saying that the Russians were surrounding Ukraine, were amassing troops uh, on the border with Ukraine? Well, it was a weird kind of projection because that's what the Ukraine armed forces were doing. They were amassing their armies in the east for a final conquest of the breakaway republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. And what happened was that the, the Russians, in essence, beat them to the punch. And that's why, because they were amassed there on the east, right on the contact line, that's why the Russians have been able to encircle that army, which numbers some 60,000 soldiers. And it's very important to understand these are 60,000 frontline combat troops. They've surrounded them. They're actually in, in several, in about four different cauldrons, they're called, which is basically pockets that are surrounded by Russian forces. And the, um, the Russians basically have cut off the major cities, Kiev, uh, Kharkov, uh, Mariupol, Lugansk, um, Donetsk. They've cut them off. Well, Lugansk and Donetsk are now under control of the Russians, but they've cut off the cities and cut off the armies. There's no longer a centralized defensive strategy by the Ukrainians. And so it's just a matter of time. When you have a divided army and divided defenses, that's what's currently happening. It's just a matter of time before the, the, the attacking forces, in this case, the Russians, uh, they're gonna take over. And by the way, the reason they call this strategy the cauldron, because what they do is they surround 
a, a pocket of resistance or a group of soldiers or a city. They surround it and then slowly start turning up the heat, like on a cauldron. And it's a famous strategy that the Russians have employed from the beginning of the 19th century. It's nothing new. It's slow, grinding, methodical. And uh, this is how the Russians are winning this conflict. And what's really interesting is that so many people in the commentariat in the West think that the Russians are losing. And you, you wonder why, because the Russians are taking over towns. The Russians are advancing troops. And you're trying to understand why do the very, very smart people in the West think that the Russians are losing? And then you understand why. And it took me a while for me to figure it out. Uh, because we are so used to, over the last 30 years, that when the Americans go to war, how do they go to war? They send their air force to completely bombard a city, destroy it, annihilate it. They start with the infrastructure, with the electrical grid, uh, telephony. Then they go after water mains, heating, uh, uh, you know, heating systems, whatnot. They just systematically destroy all of the infrastructure in the city. And this causes enormous damage to the civilian population, which is either killed or left homeless or flees. And, uh, and once they have softened up, quote unquote, a city like this, which is just basically annihilating the city, then the Americans or NATO or call them what you will, the, the global American empire, the GAE, they roll in in essentially a mopping up operation. They've destroyed the city, and then they roll in and take it over. And, and of course, by that time, there's no resistance whatsoever, and the pockets of resistance are trivial. But the Russians don't fight the war like that. They're not interested in destroying the cities. On the contrary, they want to maintain the cities and minimize civilian casualties as much as they can. What they want to do is to neutralize the opposing armed force. And notice, it's neutralized, not destroyed. The Russians are just as happy if somebody surrenders or if an opposing army deserts. They're, they're not trying to kill. They're trying to uh, uh, eliminate the threat that the opposing armed force poses. And so that mentality, um, frankly, is far more humane. And it makes you realize that the American mode of war that we, have, we in the West have become accustomed to over the last 30 years is really despicable. I mean, you, you start to realize, uh, I am a conservative. Politically, I am conservative. But you and I are, are probably on opposite sides of the spectrum in, on a whole host of issues. But when I used to hear um, men of the left, such as yourself, say that you know George Bush was a war criminal and Bill Clinton was a war criminal and, and, and all the rest of it, I was like, yeah, 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 okay. But comparing the way the Russians carry out a war and comparing it to how the Americans have carried out a war, I stand corrected. I have to fully agree that the American leaders, people like Tony Blair, like uh, George W. Bush, they truly are war criminals. They, they committed unspeakable atrocities um, that served no purpose. They, they, they were just, it was wanton destruction. Because I'm seeing how the Russians are carrying out the war. I am in the middle of Kharkov, and I am speaking to you over cell phone. I have internet. I have running water. I have sewage. I have heat, which is crucial in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, electricity, of course. I mean, 
everything is normal because the Russians did not go out to destroy the civilian infrastructure. They are not trying to conquer cities. They're trying to neutralize the opposing armed force. And you realize that this is the civilized way of waging war. I mean, war is, by definition, uh, violent and barbaric. But there are degrees of barbarism. And this is as humane as possible, the way that they are carrying it out. And then you realize that analysts in the West, since they're so used to this total destruction and annihilation of cities and and the complete uh, um, ruin of the people that uh, are being conquered, then you realize that, yeah, of course, from their point of view, since the Russians are not destroying everything in their path, they're, quote unquote, losing the war which is, you know, the, the situation we're at. Anyway, I've ranted a little bit. Um, ask me anything No, you haven't. It's been, uh, it's been uh, absolutely uh, riveting, fascinating. Uh, may I ask uh, why you're there? Why you're sure, there in Kassel? Ask away. Please. How did you end up our man in Kharkiv? Uh, well, uh, what happened? I am from Chile. Uh, my accent doesn't make it sound that way. Uh, and I grew up, I spent a lot of time in the United States. My father worked in finance and I went to university in the United States. So I went to Dartmouth and I worked in Hollywood as a writer. And then I published novels and, uh, and, and then got involved into different businesses. And in what was it? 2011, I, uh, 2012, I, uh, met a Ukrainian woman, um, in Germany because I had some friends in Germany and uh, I went to visit them and I was living in Paris at the time. And, uh, and you know, the, the usual happened, you know, fell in love. She was the au pair of these acquaintances and uh, fell in love. And, you know, now we have a couple of kids uh, and uh, well, they are far away from me at this time. And we came to move, to live here in 2016 because um, her family is from here. And uh, I thought it would be, you know, nice to live here for a while. And then I, I had different businesses that I had to attend to in London and Amsterdam. And so this was like a good base of operation while the kids grew up and learned Russian and Ukrainian. And, uh, and well, this situation arose and it caught me personally. I was in Kiev. Um, I, was, I went out to Kiev on some trivial business, uh, just some residency stuff that I had to take care of. And uh, I was supposed to be there for two nights, and I arrived the day before the invasion. So I had uh, front row seats to that. And um, insofar as the, the invasion, I, I've had this hobby of being a YouTuber, and I was winding it down last year. Um, late last year, I was just winding it down because, you know, I'd had a good run. It was fun. But what happened was that I started um, reporting on what, what was going on in Kiev, and I would go up and down Krishatik Avenue, um, videotaping myself and showing the sights as the war developed. And uh, what I noticed early on that made me no friends among many people was that the uh, Zelensky regime was handing out uh, firearms willy-nilly to the population. In the end, they distributed something like 10,000 weapons. And at the time, I thought that this was exceedingly dangerous because you, you, you don't know who you're giving these weapons to. And these civilians who are going to use these weapons, they don't know how to use them because it's not enough to know how to shoot a gun. You have to know how to move with as a team. You know, I mean, it's, there's a reason that soldiers train 
it's it's not just picking up a gun and aiming and shooting. You have to know how to move, know how to react so that you are effective and don't injure yourself or other people. And so I thought it was crazy. And I said that criminals were going to get these weapons and lo and behold, they got them. And I witnessed how uh, there were shootouts in Kiev. I witnessed them, not that I saw them, I heard them. I, I would hear, uh, you know, uh, automatic fire in downtown Kiev. And the distance of it was not more than, say, 250 meters to 500 meters on the outside at a time when it was known that the closest uh, uh, Russian fighters were 30, 40 kilometers away. So it was obvious that what was happening was that these weapons fell into the hands of criminals, as has been later confirmed. And these criminals started using them on the civilian population, on, on each other, setting scores and whatnot. And that's why I started paying attention to the Zelensky regime, because as a foreigner in Ukraine, um, as a foreigner in any country, quite frankly, I think it's wrong for a foreigner uh, to um, you know, be discussing and having an opinion about the local governance. After all, you're a guest. And so my, my thinking has been always like when I go to somebody's house as a guest, I don't tell them you know, to change the wallpaper or why do they have the furniture the way that they do. It's their business. And if I like it or don't like it, I have to just keep it to myself. That's always been my attitude. And so insofar as the uh, Ukrainian political situation is concerned, I never had an opinion and I never really paid attention to it deliberately so that I would never fall into this trap of having an opinion where I'm a guest and, and not a citizen, where, where as a resident, I'm allowed certain privileges, but I, I'm not able to vote. I'm not able to change. And, and I shouldn't. I mean, that's that's me. That's my my opinion uh, or the way I, I, I think one ought to handle oneself as a guest in the country. But when the invasion happened, I started paying attention to the Zelensky regime for the first time. And I started doing some digging on the Zelensky regime. And I realized that Zelensky himself is an actor and he is literally a puppet. He was put into position by a, a Ukrainian Israeli Cypriot oligarch by the name of Igor Kolomoisky, who is a nasty character. Uh, this this oligarch has basically created a television program called Servant of the People and cast Zelensky as the lead and artificially inflated this television program by bribing people and getting a lot of publicity for this show, even though the show in and of itself is fairly mediocre. But it got a lot of people's attention and Zelensky as a puppet was positioned by Kolomoisky and his various associates in the entertainment industry because Kolomoisky was the owner or, or principal owner of One Plus One Media, which is the largest media company in Ukraine. And they positioned Zelensky uh, to be this uh, figure because in the television show, the, the, the Zelensky president of the TV show wants to join the EU and wants to join NATO and sells the dream that Ukraine will be wonderful and will end the corruption in Ukraine if this happens. And so uh, Zelensky is uh, um, in the TV show. He was like the ideal candidate. And so this was transitioned into reality. They even made a political party called Serpent of the People to support Zelensky's candidacy. And, you know, he won the election uh, by, by basically lying to the people 
and telling them that he would get them to the EU, he would solve the corruption problems, which are very serious in Ukraine. Uh, that you know, he sold them a bill of goods that he could not possibly deliver. And people, unfortunately, bought this story and they elected him. And quite quickly, he started acting despotically. He, um, one of the measures that he did was that he banned um, channels, television channels that were critical of him or of his uh, regime. He banned four of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, what, where before he had said that the Russian language should be allowed and it was wrong to prohibit the Russian language. Once he became president, he outlawed the Russian language. Um, and it was very clear that Kolomoisky, the, the oligarch, he was the man, along with other oligarchs, who had funded the Azov Battalion and other far-right neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine that had been instrumental in the 2014 Maidan coup. And it's very odd. This is, let me, let me, Jewish let, let me stop you there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, more yes. than, it's more than odd. It is uh, grotesque uh, that the yes. fascists uh, should be mm -hmm. being funded by uh, a Ukrainian oligarch who is Jewish. But... In the Zelensky yeah, to the Knesset, uh, he uh, let me uh, draw your attention to a very different uh, Israeli point of view. Caroline Glick, uh, an Israeli mm -hmm. writer and editor, said this this evening after Zelensky's speech to the Knesset, and I'm quoting mm -hmm. her: uh, "The claim by Zelensky." Uh, that the Ukrainians were uh, righteous Gentiles who tried to protect us from the Holocaust mm -hmm. is a revolting mm -hmm. piece of historical revisionism. She said yes. uh, that the Jews in Ukraine were massacred, not in Poland, mm -hmm. but in Ukraine and by their neighbors. The truth of the matter mm -hmm. is that a, a significant, not the majority, a significant part uh, of particularly Western Ukraine has historically mm -hmm. been anti-Semitic to its core and fell upon yes. its own Jewish population and massacred them even before the SS trains arrived to take them to the death camps. And I take my hat off to yes. Caroline Glick this evening. She called out Zelensky's lies that somehow Nazism and fascism and anti-Semitism are somehow alien uh, to the uh, nationalist forces in Ukraine, when the absolute opposite is the truth. Am I right? George, you're absolutely right. And George, can I ask you something? What kind of a man can Zelensky possibly be if he himself is Jewish and he is intimately associated with such figures as these? I mean, I have to ask somebody here. What do you think of this? I mean, I would be revolted. I, 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 could, not, I could not live with myself on a, on a level of conscious, conscience. Well, I couldn't Hello? either. Alas, we've run out of time, Gonzalo. Uh, uh, stay safe. You're a very brave and smart man, whatever you say, uh, however you uh, answer that.
I'm certain, as so are the viewers, I'm sure, who are, by the way, at record numbers right now, consider you to be one of the heroes of this dreadful situation, Gonzalo Lira in Kharkiv. The poll is quite staggering. Uh, in less than one hour, 6,100 people have voted. Should Hunter Biden be in jail? On Twitter, yes, 91%, no, 9%. I hope you're watching, or at least your carer is watching for you, Joe Biden. On YouTube, yes, 95%, no, 5%. On Telegram, yes, 98%, no, 2%. Tell him that when you go to give him his porridge in the morning, Mrs. Carer, in the White House. Now, let me go to the first question of the evening. On this day in 2016, Barack Obama became the first U.S. president to visit Cuba since 1928. Who was that? A. Herbert Hoover, B. Calvin Coolidge, C. Teddy Roosevelt. He was, who was? the last president before Obama to visit Cuba in 1928. I'll be right back. You have to remember back in 2002, 2003, there was a wish by George Bush for regime change. That's what was driving him. Nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction, which of course didn't exist in Iraq. So they had to construct some sort of formula, some sort of cover story, in order to persuade the British public that intervention in Iraq was right. Now David Kelly, uh, as an expert in weapons of mass destruction, knew that uh, this was untrue. He knew that there were probably no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was a guy that could have brought down, that was a guy that could have brought down the whole system. I reckon you're chaff. You've been thrown up to divert uh, our probing. The Foreign Affairs Select Committee, that um, parliamentarian briefing, I think that was an indignity to him. We saw it on the news and my very first thought was shock. Um, oh my God, you know, this man is in the eye of the media hurricane. Uh, he should be protected by that at least. Of course, I know your hands, Prime Minister. Are you going to resign over this? I don't know the details of how Lord Hutton happened to be selected, but what was certainly the case is that he was the right kind of judge to use from the point of view of Downing Street and the intelligence services as well. Of the 21 days of hearing, only one half of one day was spent on discussing the forensic aspects. That is disgusting. We were given the Hutton report the day before it was published, but actually what happened was he went too far. The events of 2003 were disgraceful ones in this country's history, and it's unfinished business. Those responsible for an illegal war, those responsible for the death of David Kelly, have not been brought to justice. There's been no inquest into David Kelly's death. There needs to be one. We need to make sure that those who behaved in a reprehensible way in 2003 are finally brought to book. higher education with one of the world's best-known iconoclasts the mother of all talk shows with george galloway 
The answer was Calvin Coolidge, though as Dorothy Parker would say, how could they tell? Uh, now, on the Killing Kelly, this is, as I say, the 19th anniversary today of the Bush and Blair invasion, which became an invasion and occupation of Iraq, which continues until this day. It's not ancient history, you know, until this day. And, of course, ISIS and al-Qaeda then cascaded all over the world. Now, my film... Uh, Killing Kelly fits right in at the center of the Iraq war story. And the Iraq war story fits right into the center of where we are now in 2022 in the world. You can vote uh, on the Hunter Biden poll uh, on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube and on my Telegram uh, Lynn says Hunter Biden should be in the same jail cell that Epstein didn't kill himself in. Very good, Lynn. And Dayan System says, excellent intro, George. Laughed a lot at the Trump intro. I'm a Trumper. If it weren't for Trump, I'd still be blind. Gonzalo Lira is brave and brilliant. Thank you for sharing Gonzalo with us at this heartbreaking time. And Chris in Hertfordshire says, have you noticed the pointless virtue signaling, have I, by celebrities and our local council? Crocodile Tears on TV and my local council have lit up our local high street in blue and yellow lights. Sing hallelujah. Most local councils have given up lighting their high streets uh, at all. Anwar says we feel very, very sad for the Ukrainian children, women and elderly who are suffering now in this cruel combat. Both sides have become egoistic and appreciate the patience if the EU and NATO countries not fuel the crisis. Let's take Simon in London on the Ukraine issue. Go ahead, Simon. How you doing, George? You okay, mate? All good. Nice to hear from you. What would you like to say? Well, I've been following this Ukraine crisis since the Orange Revolution began in 2004, so I was quite quick to realise, especially coming off the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, that the Western government and the MSN line on this was nothing more, part of a French, than a crock of steaming manure. However, here's something that nobody seems to talk about. You, you've talked about it on your show, of course, uh, and uh, something that needs, needs to serve as a cautionary tale. Effectively, this entire Ukrainian crisis needs to serve as a cautionary tale for those Scottish independence enthusiasts who think it's a good idea to separate themselves from the UK. In, in Ukraine, the government have blamed all their poor performances. I mean, they're, they're, they're in a huge amount of debt to, their debt to the IMF, I believe, as well. All their failings, all their financial disasters on Russia, and effectively scapegoated Russians for years since this entire debacle began. Even before the Maidan tragedy of 2014 and the US-backed coup, there was a bitter hatred towards Russians through false propaganda made up and generated by the Ukrainian government. And it was racial ethnic discrimination against the Russians and the arming of the Nazi militias that resulted in Russia, who I don't blame, taking, uh, taking an action of enough is enough stance and uh, carrying out this operation. Now, I understand that Nicholas Sturgeon backs this war, but 
Why should I be surprised? This SNP, a deeply, deeply nationalistic party, something that even your bitter rival David Stockey has pointed out, ignoring their Nazi ties from the past, which you covered on your show uh, previously, to draw parallels, just like the Nazis that blame the Jews for all their problems, like the Ukrainians blame the Russians for all their problems, the SNP, uh, an SNP in Scotland seems to blame everything on the English uh, for all their problems, as I said. And the SNP used the twisted soul tire like the Nazis used um, so, uh, the, the swastika. And I'm rather afraid that the tragedy that's currently unfolding in Ukraine will no doubt open doors for something similar to happen in Scotland. And the UK government really needs to use their head on this because effectively they're setting themselves up for the fall through backing Ukraine in this way because similar tactics could easily be used uh, by the EU to take control of Scotland. Uh, and as you, as you know, you pointed out quite rightly several times in the show, the EU absolutely hate us for Brexit. Do you, do, do, do you honestly think that this is not the end? As I said, they, they despise us, George. Well, look, I don't want to uh, compare directly the, uh, the fascism and the ultra-nationalism uh, of significant sections of the Ukrainian polity with the SNP, I think that would be uh, rather extreme. But uh, nationalism uh, is a very bad idea. In developed countries, nationalism uh, never does any good. In countries that are not actually occupied and oppressed by other countries, it is not a good idea to fan the flames of nationalism. And the Yugoslav situation and many, many others are startling testimony uh, to that. The idea that uh, you can invent uh, a scapegoat uh, is a nationalist thing. The Nazis were, of course, nationalists and they othered uh, the uh, Jewish population, but not just actually the Jewish population, but the Slavic populations also as uh, subhumans, untermensch, uh, that they had every justification for either annihilating or for working to death or for stealing their land and exploiting it. Now, this kind of mentality is common to all of the nationalist forces uh, that I have encountered in the developed world uh, over uh, my lifetime. It's certainly true in the Ukraine. In fact, as the recent statement, which I commend to everyone uh, by the Russian Communist Party on this crisis, you can find it on my Twitter feed, uh, powerfully makes clear and with tremendous clarity the best period in which the Ukraine, with its current boundaries was the period of Soviet power when heavy industry, when extractive industry and manufacturing industry was at its peak in the Ukraine. The encouragement of Ukrainian language and culture, the peak of that was during the Soviet period, before the Soviet Union. Of course, much of Ukraine was in Poland, and much of Ukraine was regarded as the borderland of Russia. It was the Soviet period that gave modern Ukraine its boundaries 
and its uh, cultural and political consciousness as a people. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. You are indeed watching uh, the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves. We have a record number of viewers right at this point in time. In the course of last week, more than two million people watched all or part of last Sunday and last Wednesday's Moats Extra. If we include tonight's audience, and tonight's audience looks like it's going to be a record, uh, then three shows in seven days will have at least three million viewers from all over the world. And then you add the podcast uh, details of which will no doubt be coming up later, where we are in the charts almost everywhere. Why do I say that? Not to blow my own trumpet, though I do say this is a wonderful, wonderful show, but because it demonstrates the absolute hunger, ravishing hunger, for a different point of view, for the other side of the story. That's what happens, you see. The book they try to ban always goes to the top of the bestseller list. That which is forbidden to people becomes more attractive to people. That's why the decisions made by governments across the West and their big tech auxiliaries to shut people down, deplatform them, will never work because, as I keep saying, this is not 1952, it's not even 2002, it's 2022, and people find the way to get the access to the point of view which they can tell is being denied to them, and if it's being denied to them, it's almost certainly for nefarious reasons. And when we have a state where lying and cheating and the, the very antithesis of all the values claimed by the societies that are doing the banning, the lying, the cheating, well, what are people supposed to do other than seek out alternative points of view? Never forget, the Hunter Biden laptop story was true. Never forget that. And never forget the lying liars who told you that it wasn't. I'm not a Donald Trump fan, but I saw a footage of him at the, just getting on an aircraft, where he said, I'm telling you, Joe Biden is a criminal. And you know what he said? You're also a criminal for refusing to report it. Boy, what a vindication the New York Times, of all people, has been to old Donald. Should Hunter Biden be in jail, you can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, and on my Telegram channel. But of course, it's not just Ukraine. The Middle East where 19 years ago this day, George Bush and Tony Blair committed the ultimate crime, the crime 
or preemptive war of a war of aggression as defined by the Nuremberg Tribunal as the ultimate crime. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Anyone want to put them on trial? Oh, no! They want to put Vladimir Putin on trial. The very same people that committed... The ultimate crime, 19 years ago this day, when they invaded and then occupied Iraq. An invasion and occupation which hasn't ended yet, 19 years later. One man who knows the whole region, inside out, back to front, top to bottom, is my good friend Isa Ali, who joins us now on the mother of all talk shows. Isa, wonderful to see you again. Let's start in Iraq. Uh, 19 years ago, shock and awe was unleashed on the people of Iraq to return uh, the country to liberty and progress. How did it all work out? Firstly, George, uh, congratulations on the record-breaking uh, numbers that you're receiving on this really much-needed show. I think it is, as you said, um, a consequence of the Iraq war, actually, a time when we saw millions of people. I was just a young man back then. I must have been around 19 years old on the streets of London marching with everyone else. Millions, millions, literally millions of people. I was on Park Lane walking in the other direction. For hours, people were coming in this direction opposite me, at least four or five million. I got home that night and the BBC told me there were 50,000 people in London protesting. I knew at that point <laughs> something wasn't right with uh, the media and then all the lies uh, that we heard from Tony Blair and George Bush. Funnily enough, in your introduction, you mentioned, uh, you know, war crimes and international courts. The United States uh, have a uh, principle that if any of their politicians are ever taken to The Hague uh, for war crimes, the United States will simply invade the Netherlands. Uh, so it just goes to show who the rogue states really are uh, in this day and age. And as you said, you know, in your question to me about uh, Iraq, we saw just over two years ago the uh, illegal murders of uh, not only Hajj Qasim Soleimani, but Abu Mahdi Mohandas, the leader of the Iraqi Hajj al-Sha'bi. And as a result of those killings, the Iraqi parliament voted to expel the Americans, expel the occupation. The Americans, in return, threatened uh, that uh, they would take Iraq's oil money, which is held at the Federal Reserve Bank, and uh, it's held uh, much of it in New York, I believe, 
and would essentially bankrupt the country. We've seen that kind of financial piracy uh, taking place with Russia losing over 600 billion of its reserves overnight, causing shockwaves all the way to Beijing, no doubt. Uh, and so we see the kind of lawlessness that the Americans, through multiple uh, presidencies, whether it's Bush, Obama or Trump, and now Biden, uh, throwing international law in the air, ignoring the will of the people of Iraq and elsewhere. And uh, really, the people of uh, Iraq want to be free of occupation. And uh, they fought an insurgency for, uh, well, close to a decade. And since then, there's been much political agitation, despite the American attempts, of course, to try to manipulate the political situation there, to try to bribe their way through the situation and to try uh, to get their quislings to prolong their stay. But I believe it's only a matter of time until the Americans withdraw physically, although, of course, their meddling hands will continue uh, until they are taught a lesson. Let's move next door uh, to Iran. The last time I spoke to you, we were very hopeful that... Uh, the Vienna talks had been successful, uh, that the Iran nuclear deal, uh, like uh, Humpty Dumpty wasn't, had been put back together again after Donald Trump broke it and then killed uh, the uh, leaders uh, to whom you referred. Um, we thought that a kind of normalcy uh, would return. But since I last spoke to you, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, landed several high-powered missiles on the compound of the American consulate in Erbil. The United States felt unable to respond to that themselves. Uh, and the uh, whole thing seems to have uh, been put on hold. What can you tell us? I think eventually there will be some kind of deal. Um, it's, you know, it, it would appear that as far as the Iranians are concerned, that uh, those missile attacks were aimed at the Israelis. Uh, we know that for many, many decades, going back to the 1950s, uh, probably beyond as well, the Israelis have had uh, a, pro uh, a, a presence in Iraqi uh, Kurdistan, shall we say, or the Kurdish regions of Iraq, close ties uh, to those leaders there. And that only intensified since 2003. And so uh, two Iranian uh, uh, military officials were killed in Syria by an Israeli air airstrike. And, you know, George, you, you, you'll know better than anyone. Uh, the Iranians, the Syrians, the Lebanese, they keep getting hit in Syria by these airstrikes. There hasn't been much of a response. And I think the Iranians reached a point where enough is enough. They had to strike back and send a message. And they did so, as you said, on that attack. It's still unclear whether there was an attack on the American compound itself or right next to it. But it appears that in any case, the attack was definitely aimed at Mossad or their uh, bases in the region. And perhaps that's the American uh, excuse not to retaliate and get themselves embroiled that uh, they've kind of in a way, said, well, it wasn't really us, it's the Israelis, let them deal with it. Perhaps the Americans are sick and tired of the Israelis giving them problems in the region, who knows? But uh, I think it's interesting, as you said, it was the IRGC, there, are, there is an internal debate in Iran about this deal, right? There are those who think that, why should we return to the, to the negotiating table? Why should we accept a deal, stop our own, you know, sovereign rights to a nuclear program, only for someone to come along in the next few years and say Donald Trump again, maybe, and tear the whole thing up again. And because I don't think there are those guarantees, there are many in Iran who say, well, we shouldn't enter into this deal. And perhaps, speculation on my part, for those parties and those constituencies, 
perhaps the deal breaking up isn't the, the biggest uh, tragedy in the world. And for many of them, they would say Iran has faced the biggest sanctions, the hardest sanctions. You know, whatever Russia's going through now, Iran's been going through that for uh, well, since the revolution, but at least the last few years. So uh, we don't need the international system, is, is that perspective. But of course, you have uh, the government of President uh, Raisi now, of course, who's followed from President Rouhani and uh, would like to get this deal done. I still think there will be a deal. I think the Americans uh, realise and Biden realises that, uh, you know, going into midterms and then eventually another presidential election with this type of uh, situation on the global stage, inflation, higher fuel prices and so on is a surefire way uh, to get battered at the uh, elections. Only time for one more, but we could talk about Lebanon, we could talk about Syria, uh, but I've only time to talk with you about Yemen. Uh, people don't seem to know, maybe they don't want to know, maybe they've merely averted their eyes, uh, that Right at the same time as there is a war in Ukraine, there is a war that's been going on for nearly eight years in Yemen, in which both Britain and the United States are deeply, deeply involved. And there is a war between Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, in both of which countries Boris Johnson was on his knees just this week. Uh, and the poorest people in the entire Middle East, one of the poorest people in the world in Yemen who have been pulverized and slaughtered by high-intensity bombing for all these years, yet nobody seems to really care about it. Absolutely. You know, the situation in Yemen has highlighted exactly how uh, hypocritical and, frankly speaking, racist uh, much of the media is, much of the political establishment is, and many people are, in fact, uh, in the West. But interestingly enough, despite everything the people of Yemen have gone through, uh, they are, of course, I would say the most oppressed people in the world, the poorest people in the world. They're also the bravest and most steadfast people uh, that I've ever uh, come across, met personally, and even, of course, heard about on a political sense. They've got the whole world against them, uh, more or less. Israel is involved in that war. Saudi Arabia, as you've mentioned, and the Emirates. The Americans and the British are in the command centers leading this war. It's not just supplying weapons. Of course, the Saudis couldn't uh, uh, organize a drink up in a brewery, I think is the polite term. These guys couldn't organize a war. It's uh, the American and British so-called military advisors who are running this uh, morbid show. And yet, they've not only not managed to really get anywhere, the, Saudi, uh, the, the Yemenis are consistently uh, handing the backsides of the Saudi soldiers to them, or their mercenaries, bombing targets in Saudi itself, uh, launching quite sophisticated strikes, actually, against the UAE and against uh, Saudi itself. And I think on that front as well, uh, there are, uh, there, there will have to be at some point if Mohammed bin Salman isn't completely uh, stupid and isn't a complete madman, although it could be argued he is, he'll have to come and accept that there has to be some kind of uh, political solution and some kind of uh, peace made uh, because the Yemeni people simply will not give in. But it is heartbreaking. You know, there are uh, tens of millions of people at risk of famine, of cholera, starvation. Uh, and yet it seems the, the world just turns its eyes away. It views as though those people as uh, less than complete, less than human. But of course, there are many people who do have that 
love and care for Yemeni people and many charities doing great work out there. Uh, and so, you know, it's important that people, we don't get too negative in these uh, circumstances and too frustrated because, yes, the rest of the world is hypocritical. There is a lot of uh, double standards in how these different conflicts are viewed. But at the same time, there's also a lot to be positive uh, about. And, and again, the, the, you know, the conflict in Yemen has broken all of these uh, if you will, these uh, fault lines, these geopolitical fault lines down and really exposed uh, many of these countries for, for who they are. Well, uh, uh, Sheikh Zayed, uh, the late ruler of the United Arab Emirates, whom I knew well and met many times, uh, said to me once vis-a-vis -vis Iraq, uh, all wars have to end sometime. Uh, the Arabs, he said, have been fighting each other for millennia, but all wars have to end sometime. What did you think when you saw President Bashar al-Assad of Syria meeting the rulers of the United Arab Emirates, who tried mightily to destroy the Syrian Arab Republic over the last decade? I think this is a reflection of Firstly, the loss of these uh, Arab Gulf countries or these Persian Gulf countries, should I say, but the uh, Arab rulers of them who have been for many years trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. But interestingly enough, in that time, there's been a split amongst the Gulf. So you've got the Qataris going up against the Saudis and the uh, Emiratis. And the Qataris, in general, very vaguely, have played a more positive role. But in Syria, it would appear that they've been trying to stir up the uh, rebels again and the uh, the kind of terrorist groups who are in Idlib and so on. And maybe Bashar is sending them a message by saying, it's okay, I'll just go to uh, your neighbors and your enemies for those reconstruction funds. And it is, you know, it's sickening for many people, many Syrians, no doubt, to see that the people who uh, essentially bankrolled the destruction of their country are now welcoming their leader but, you know, this is the uh, reality of politics, of real politic. I mean, we've just seen a couple of weeks ago uh, the Saudi, uh, the Russians backing the Emirates on uh, that resolution to do with Yemen. And it's uh, uh, really kind of disappointing for many people to see that. On the other hand, uh, I was speaking to somebody you know, from Yemen the other day, and he was saying, well, a lot of the weapons that uh, the resistance and the Houthis and other groups have are Russian weapons. So, you know, the, the all of this politics is very, very unfortunate, but it, it, it would appear to me that um, it's a sign that uh, Syria was successful in getting rid of uh, the attempt against its country. But these leaders, these Emiratis and others need to follow it up with action. They need to uh, fund reconstruction efforts and get Syria back to where it was, which really is a jewel uh, of the Levant and a jewel of the Middle East. Amen. Thank you very much indeed for that, Isa Ali. Let's go to Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Oh, good evening, George. Thank you very much indeed, sir. I'm absolutely buzzing here. We fought for the Thank last you. five, six years to, to get out of Europe, EU, under the control of Soros and Blair and all these people that are in there that are against uh, Democracy is the, is the only word. You yourself, George, you suffered under this lot by being fired by Blair and then his, his, his henchman, uh, Campbell, and so on. Uh, and they, excuse the, the, the language, it got rid of you out of the system. That has been gone. Yeah, I'm almost, almost 20 years out of the system, though I did win two famous election victories against them. I know. 
I, I know, but you have had to fight on your own virtually, George. Oh, my goodness. And they, they, I could show you fighting. my scars, Rich. <laughs> You've been fighting a financial machine that is, wow. It's, it, sure. it's just there all the time. Billions and billions of people's uh, hands who are using it very, very badly. The last one, of course, is Sturgeon, and we've got to beat her to stop her from getting us back into the EU. Because that is what all this mm. fight is about. And to think that the Iraq war and, and, and Blair, he went to America and Bush was draining. And he said, you know, and he, he told him, he said, don't worry. He said, I will spin this war to the world. You no need to worry, George. We're going to war. And then when it was all over in a few weeks, the, the general said, we're not going into Afghanistan. And Blair said, yes, we bloody well are. You can get your money in there. And for the last 20 years, we've been at war. Who's talking about this yes. wonderful man called Blair? He's a warmonger, and he should be in the Hague, George. Well, the, yeah, I mean, uh, Richard, to put a tin hat on it, him and Gordon Brown are both demanding a war crimes tribunal like Nuremberg uh, for the Russian president. I mean, the, the, the lack of <laughs> self-consciousness is simply <laughs> staggering, and none of... None of the mainstream journalists, when they say that, ask, well, what about Iraq? What about the yes. fact that you illegally invaded Iraq and you devastated it and the consequences are still being felt today? But, Rich, I want to ask you something. You and yes, I sir. were both big supporters of Brexit and yes. I don't resolve from it at all. I'll go to my grave proud of the role I played in the fight yes. for Brexit. But it seems, it seems that there are a lot of people who supported us on Brexit, wanted to end our dependence on the European Union, only for us to become dependent on the United States of America. I want us to be independent, full stop, independent of the EU and independent of Joe Biden. Exactly. But, you know, that's a big thing when you've got trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars against you. You've got the Cl Clinton crime family. You've got Obama. You, you've got all the people in the White House. Pelosi, she's nearly dead when she's talking. And these people are controlling the world now, George. And I, I, yep. I, I would... I'd love to sit and talk to you for hours about this because it's got to be known that you said it tonight three times. The president, Trump, was absolutely correct. Babalinsky, who was a good friend of Biden's son, he came on here and he spent days and weeks telling us this is a load of corrupt families that are dealing here in UK. Ukraine and everywhere else. It's all been highlighted. And, and I said to my son-in-law, they won't let President Trump serve another term. And that's what they did. And Hillary Clinton is responsible for Julian Assange being where he is. And she should be incarcerated with Blair. And I know I'm going on a bit, George, but to me, this is so exciting. Powerful. If, 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 you know, the New York Times come out and then they can get some great lawyers on this, and Giuliani was one of them who, who, who really came to the fore on it. I, I followed this like you. I followed it like, wow, this is right. If we could get President Trump 
along with um, um, whichever government was in in England, to do a great big trillion, trillion, trillion dollar deal. It was good for us all, but they wouldn't let us. Joe Biden come on and use the Irish problem, the Irish problem, as an excuse to say that we can't deal uh, with, with Britain anymore. What a shock. But I tell you what, we're proving them wrong. And all these people that Blair's employing or Soros is employing to go to to, to Brussels and to try to get us back in the EU. Do you know what, George? I'll come in the front line with you and we'll have a go at them all and let's get millions on the streets out of the 17.4 million. Because if they do that to us, that's wrong. Richard, very powerful indeed. Thank you very much indeed. The poll is headed for a record. If it isn't already a record, should Hunter Biden be in jail? 8,500 people have voted. Chanrai Bishop says, you sound like a madman. Really? You're basically arguing that the Ukrainians do not have a right to exist. Me? There are many nations around the world that don't have a large military. Actually, Ukraine has a massive military, 450,000 strong. It was only 120,000 in 2014. So it's tripled nearly in size in just eight years. I wonder why. I wonder how. Based on what you're saying, a more powerful country has the right to just attack them and take them over. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Mr. Chanrai Bishop, you're going to need to call me and argue this out, man to man. 0808196552. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. We'll see who's the madman when you call. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Talk with John. John, welcome to the show. Hello, George. Thank you. I'm honored. Welcome. You're welcome. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, uh, it's just crazy seeing the media blackout here in the United States. Uh, I, I happened to read 1984 for the first time uh, a couple months ago, and I was struck thinking about it afterwards, about how it's assigned to uh, high school students here, at least back in the day. And I think it was as a warning uh, for, like, Soviet or, or Russian uh, communism and authoritarian government. and But now, from my perspective here, growing up in the United States, it, for me, it was like I finished the book thinking, like, I felt like I had just been subjected to an MK Ultra experiment or something. And to me, it spoke out against none other than American government. And now, now with the media blackout, having to cut through all the, the, the uh, mass media lies and false coverage, to get any semblance of the truth, it's like playing Sudoku. And uh, it's just crazy to look from the perspective that we're in now. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, uh, he, he didn't intend that to be the case, but that's how it has turned out. 1984 was supposed to be a novel, not a manual, uh, but the manual yeah. is in full application now. Uh, particularly in your country and in mine increasingly. In fact, your country and mine are effectively becoming one, uh, albeit in the words of Oscar Wilde, one divided by a common language. Uh, but our rulers are uh, on the same page, uh, so we might as well be on the same page too in how we try to get 
liberty and freedom back again. John, thanks uh, very much for that excellent call from the podcast. In the past week, we've had our biggest numbers yet. Believe it or not, we've had more listeners this week on the podcast than we did in the previous three months. We are the top listened to alternative media political podcast in the world, charting in the political top 20 in the UK, Ireland, Spain, Italy, India, Russia, Germany, Belgium, Turkey, Denmark, Cyprus, Hungary, Qatar, Poland, Portugal, Nigeria, Egypt, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore, Sweden, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. <laughs> How about that then? For a guy from a council house in Dundee, we're quickly becoming one of the top political podcasts in China also. And we're still number one in Ghana, Oman, Namibia, Ecuador, Slovenia, Zimbabwe, Malaysia, but also now in Bulgaria and in Iceland. Now remember to subscribe uh, to this podcasting phenomenon, like so many thousands now all over the world, give us a five-star review, please. Like Ali in the UK, who says simply the best. And hi, George, I'm Hiba from London. I've been watching your show for the last few months and can say without hesitation that you're truly one of the best to show us reality, which has been censored by the corrupt Rupert Murdoch and state-run media outlets. Carry on with your smart and hard work. May Allah bless you always. Best regards, Hiba in London. How beautiful is that? Thank you, Hiba. Thank you, uh, Ali. Keith is in Grimsby. Let's hear from him. I don't often get up to Grimsby. Keith, last time I was there, I was on BBC Question Time along with a young backbencher called David Cameron. I wonder whatever happened to him. I don't, I don't know. I never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, sir. Yes, I agree with all those callers. Uh, it's a wonderful show, and it's very refreshing. After all, it's sitting propaganda on the mainstream media. Thank well, you, sir. The main thing I, I'm ringing about, um, or two things, in fact, uh, my disappointment at uh, losing RT, I've been watching it for many years now, and like you, I'm a big fan of um, Max Kaiser and his wife, Tracy. Unlike you, Thank I... Thank God um, for them. Thank God for I, that. I didn't take him up on his Bitcoin off all those years ago. Well, uh, luckily I question. did. L luckily I, I did, which is why, which is I, why I don't need any I wages. I don't need any wages from anybody. I won't ask you how much you. I won't ask you how much you've made. It'll spoil my night. <laughs> well, ten dollars. I bought them at ten dollars. I bought them at ten dollars, and I've got quite a lot of them. So you can do the maths. I know. I can well imagine. <laughs> Big regrets. God bless. Um, God bless been, like I say, I've been watching RT for many years, and I've always found um, uh, Lavrov and Putin quite reasonable, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, actually, when you compare them, compare Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken to Putin and Lavrov, compare Boris Johnson and somebody called Liz 
trust to Putin and Lavrov. You've Absolutely. got a golfing class Absolutely. there. You've got a golfing class there, Keith. I know. Um, Putin seems to have been bent over backwards to placate the West. And I've watched it diligently for many too years much. now. Too much. Far too much. Uh, Lavrov was right when he said this week that these sanctions are going to make us never again dependent on other people, never again to allow foreigners to be able to strategically damage our economy. We're going to ensure our independence now. And he said we should have done it long ago. And he was right. Absolutely. They should have done it. Yeah, I've found them quite, I've always found very decent people. Look, Russia is a country that needs respect. That's all. And its security concerns to be addressed. That's all. We would insist upon it for ourselves. If, if, if Ireland or Scotland had foreign and hostile nuclear bases in them, with rockets, including nuclear rockets, pointed at us, be sure we would insist upon it. If Mexico or Canada had hostile foreign military bases in them with rockets, including nuclear weapons, pointed at the United States, be sure the United States would do something about it. Last word to you, Keith. Just one, two quick questions, George. You've mentioned um, recently that um, you wouldn't have voted for Putin. And I don't quite no, understand. I'd have voted communist. I'd have voted for the communist candidates because they would have acted sooner to ensure the independence right. of Russia. And because so they would have less tolerance uh, for so, the oligarchy for the crony capitalists in Russia uh, that uh, the Putin has had. Now, Putin has cracked down on the oligarchs, but he needs to crack down more. Putin has made Russia strong again and recovered its prestige again. And I support Putin for that. But in domestic politics, I think that the Changes that are required need to be implemented now in this straightened and unusual time. We need a new Russia to emerge from these ashes. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, David McBride is one of my favorite soldiers. He is a brave soldier, a clever one, a military lawyer who blew the whistle on war crimes allegedly carried out by members of the Australian military. Instead of putting the war criminals on trial, they decided to put David on trial instead. And we are keeping a careful track on what's happening to him. And we also want to hear his take on what's happening in the Ukraine. I'm glad to say he joins us again now. David McBride, thank you very much for joining us. Um, let's start with your own situation, if we may, because many of our viewers are very keen to know uh, how the 
persecution of you currently stands? Still going ahead. I'm facing trial in September uh, and a jury trial probably in 2023. We are making significant inroads. Uh, I've got a documentary about my life coming out quite soon, which I think will help build support. And uh, there is a big defamation case going on where one of the soldiers accused of war crimes ended up suing the newspapers and um, for calling him a war criminal. But now about 20 witnesses have come in and said he's a war criminal. Whether he is or not, I don't know. But uh, it looks like he's going to lose that case. And that will be, um, if he does, that will be an important advantage for me because it will increasingly the noose will be tightening around the government's neck to say, how come you've got this guy on trial, a bit like Julian Assange's case, when everything he said was true? Do you not like truth? Uh, do you not like being exposed? What is the problem? Is it simply because he embarrassed the government? It is a very powerful argument. I, I pray to God that it uh, prevails. Uh, but, of course, uh, the precedent of uh, Julian Assange and Stephen Donziger is not great, uh, despite my thinking that the Australian government would be very foolish indeed to proceed with a trial against you. Uh, the precedent of Julian and Stephen is that even when it's very foolish, they continue to do very foolish things. Yes, and that's what I'm relying on to a certain extent. Uh, it's a bit like the bully in the playground. I mean, the way to um, counterintuitive, but the way, to, as we all know, and, and as you did to the Americans back in 2003, the way uh, to deal with a bully is to confront them because they don't think like you or me. And we wouldn't be in such a bad situation if, if the way our governments act is not so devoid, so completely different to the way you and I act. They will probably almost certainly continue on with my trial to the very bitter end in the same way that this soldier sued for defamation, even though it was a bad thing to do. We had another politician who sued for defamation over some serious allegations and again it blew up in his face and you would have thought any rational person would have said, don't go there, you've got so many skeletons in your closet, but they don't think like that. And the government, they may drop the case on the court steps because they will be very worried about generals having to come in without their spin doctors, without their friendly newspaper editors and actually answer the very hard question, did you know about the war crimes? And if not... How is that not incompetence? And if so, etc., uh, etc. Et now, uh, everyone watching will wish you uh, well in your case. How can people help you? How can they stay in touch with what's happening on the case? I have a, a Twitter account. I have... Uh, a, a website, davidmcbride.com.au. 
I have a GoFundMe uh, for anyone that's got it to throw the price of a cup of coffee. Everyone's doing it tough, but a small amount, uh, which is called uh, 50 years in prison for whistleblowing on the ADF. So I'd be very grateful, and, and, and messages of support can be sent there too. But I always love... Uh, program. I know your viewers uh, know what's really going on in the world, and uh, it's always great to see you. You're, you're right. This is the, the best educated television audience in the whole world. They're not students at the Open University of the Airwaves for nothing. David, as I've got you here, let me ask you something that doesn't really compute with me. I see Australia almost daily threatening China on behalf of a power at the other end of the world, whilst China is your neighbor. And, and Australia is not remotely in a position to fight China. China is your major trading partner. Why has this Australian government allowed itself to be a kind of cat's paw against China. What, what's going on there? Look, I totally agree, George. It is, it, it is embarrassing for me as an Australian. Uh, and my grandparents and parents would be ashamed too. We fought to keep Australia independent. We are now a, a totally owned subsidiary of the United States. There is no Australia as far as foreign uh, affairs goes anymore. We joined the war in Afghanistan on exactly the same day as Americans. We left the war in Afghanistan on exactly the same day as the Americans. The funny thing is they still maintain some sort of facade of independence. It's a joke. We, we, are, we are not independent of, of the US anymore. It's very apparent in relation to China. It was only about three years ago that we were, as you said, had very close relations with China. Chinese naval ships sailed into Sydney Harbour and docked at our naval. They docked at our naval, you know, docks. Uh, nothing major has changed since then, except the Americans, Pompeo and his buddies, have told us we have to hate China. So now we hate China because we've been told to. And even though it was, it was crazy for us because they were our biggest trading uh, partner and they suddenly went to being an enemy. And it's all right for the Americans because they're the Americans' natural trading enemy. But they were our natural trading partner. And this is why our government has sold our people down the river. We have lost so many trading opportunities with China and for what? To make the Americans happy. And no one kind of thinks about it. The point of American foreign policy is to make America richer. It's not to make Australia richer. Uh, and yet our politicians haven't cottoned on to that or perhaps even more sinister, so nefarious as American influence in Australia that um, a bit like a lot of other uh, smaller countries around the world, you cannot get elected as a leader unless the American intelligence organisation give you the, uh, the thumbs up. And that's quite a scary thing. I mean, to think that we, 
our, our own leaders, and there's been allegations of this, have to be approved by the Americans, otherwise they're gone. Now that's it's almost, I mean, uh, almost, uh, almost incredible, almost impossible to believe. If it wasn't coming from you, uh, I wouldn't believe it. Major McBride, thanks for joining us once again, and the best of luck uh, in your campaign. Uh, so the vote is strong for a second hour poll, my goodness. Over 4,000 people have voted. It's not good news for the, official, for the official channels in the United States. Let's hear uh, for, uh, from Ollie in London on the Ukraine. Go ahead, Ollie. Hi, George. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Can, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, the whole world's listening. Go ahead. Okay, okay, great. So I just said, yeah, I wanted just to make um, one or two comments on the Russia and Ukraine situation. So yeah. I totally um, get um, from Russia's point of view that the fact that it was almost impossible for them to allow Ukraine to join NATO because America would never allow it because that would technically be saying if there was a kind of Russia and NATO, that would basically be saying Mexico or Canada you know, to be in a kind of Russia and NATO, which America would never allow, of which America never did, which were America didn't allow for Cuba. That's why we had exactly. We nearly had World War Three over Cuba, which is 90 miles away, an island in the Caribbean. Yes, yes, exactly. But, but I think the, but then I think the invasion of Ukraine goes beyond just the NATO thing, because if you, if you watch the statement by Putin in the days before the invasion and the week after, whereby he says he, he maintains by what he said in that speech that as far as he's concerned, Russia and Ukraine are the same people, they are the same nation. Um, and he was sort of even blaming um, um, Lenin for the creation of, um, of Ukraine. But, you know, but that might all be true to Putin, but it's off. It's up to Ukrainian people to decide whether they and Russia are one nation or not. And this invasion is not going to do the exact opposite. There's now no future whereby Ukrainians and Russians are going to have a love-lost, you know, there's going to be a love-lost relationship. Well, no, uh, you're, you're at least half, at least, at least half of the people of Ukraine before the war wanted and expressed regularly in opinion polls, uh, wanted good relations with Russia. In fact, uh, were uh, preferred for Ukraine to be neutral, neither east nor west. And that was a sensible conclusion uh, that they reached. Uh, and of course, that may have increased or it may have decreased as a result of what has exactly. happened since. But uh, exactly because, the, Russian, because, uh, the Russians do not want to take over Ukraine. Uh, the the yeah. war aims do not involve uh, the two countries becoming one, Oli. No, I, I, but, but like I said, but if, if you watch the speech by Putin himself, whereby he says... I watched it Russia, twice. I watched it twice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereby he says that as far as it's concerned, Russia and Ukraine are one nation. You know, well, that I mean, was the case. That was but, the case but, for a, but, for a millennium. That has the it, it benefit was, of but, being but, true. It was, but but currently it's no longer true. And for him to say, no. 
I, but but, they, but he, said, he accepts that. No, look, no. Oli, you're wrong. You're wrong. The Minsk agreement, which Russia supported, but unfortunately Ukraine did not implement, involved Ukraine gaining a state on exactly the borders uh, that it always had since the end of the Soviet Union. As long as a special status could be granted to the Russian-speaking people in what is uh, now known as the independent republics uh, of Lugansk and Donetsk. Am I right or wrong? No, but it, 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 but it's still not it's still not relating to the point that I said. Like Putin himself said that as far as it's concerned, presently. Russia and Ukraine are one nation. Like he said that in the TV address, and then he doubled down to say, but that is is not going to change his conviction that the two of them are, are the same nation. Well, uh, that is uh, overwhelmingly the view of uh, uh, the Russian people and of it, the Ukrainian people. They were four hundreds. Listen, if you look at the 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 last czars. Uh, documentary on Netflix, you'll see uh, that the Queen Mother of Russia lived where? In Kiev. Not in eastern Ukraine, in western Ukraine. In Kiev, that was where the royal palace was. Well, it was, as I, myself, as I myself said, Oli, earlier in the show, it was Lenin, it was the Bolsheviks, Actually, it was Stalin's policy on the nationalities that created anything called Ukraine. Before that, it was a part of Russia, and half of it was a part of Poland. Indeed, but again, but you can't go back in time and unfix that. The nation no, has been nobody, created. Nobody, nobody wants to go back in time. Let's hope uh, that there's a peace deal agreed this week, Oli, and come back and talk to me uh, next week. Uh, let me get through some of the social media because I've never had more. Razmataz says Liz Truss told UK nationals to go and fight in Ukraine against international law. And many of these citizens who did are probably dead now after Russia's missile strikes. Well, that is actually true. Mercenaries are being specially targeted. Nobody wants a mercenary. It was a gross error of judgment on the part of Liz Truss uh, to encourage them. And Bushman says the sanctions will hinder the West more than Russia. China and India alone are nearly 40% of the world's population. Nyla says Julian Assange is getting married on Wednesday at Belmarsh Prison. Come there and celebrate at 1 p.m. If any of you can be at Belmarsh Prison on Wednesday at 1 p.m., go and let Mr. and Mrs. Assange hear you outside. And Nicolaj, N-I-C-O-L-A-J, says it's important to understand that intelligence often waters down the real narrative with conspiracy theories. While people talk about the towers, 
The real story is the lie to go to war. See COVID, not eugenics, but infrastructure of a checkpoint society. And late to the party says, after the last two years, I don't take official accounts of anything at face value anymore. Sad to say that even though I'm naturally sceptical, cynical, my husband says, I've generally trusted authority. Not anymore. This is the problem for the powerful and for the media that serve them. Nobody believes you anymore, even when you're telling the truth. Let me go to Georgia. I think the U.S. state of Georgia, rather than the Republic of Georgia, let's hear Chris in Georgia. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hello. Yes. Yes. I, I really, this is my first time calling in. Nice meeting you. Um, I just and you, wanted, and I just, you, brother, go ahead. Go ahead. I just had a question. Like, my job has me paying attention to geopolitics now. So, you know, so now I'm watching and I'm paying attention to what's going on. I, I just got a question. So, the way I read in the paper today that the United States sanctioned uh, Russia's millionaires, I guess billionaires, they took the, the yachts or something, and they just held them just because they were Russians. So would, would Russia and China be able to do the same thing to the United States like by raising taxes or products they import here or, you know, just any other yeah, way they would be able to do it? Uh, Ru Ru Russia is answering uh, sanctions uh, one by one and will continue to do so, although... I did see that the Russian government declared, contrary to what I'd heard about McDonald's and so on, uh, that uh, Russia would not uh, nationalize foreign assets. Uh, that's up to them. It's their business. If I was in charge, <laughs> I definitely would. Um, but they've said that they respect private property in a way that the Capitalist states, which are supposedly built on the rights of private property, I clearly do not. Now, I have spent all of my life, Chris, looking forward to the day when the expropriators were expropriated. But not just some expropriators, and not just some oligarchs, not just some people's yachts. The world's divided into... Uh, the have-nots and the have-yachts. Well, let's build a country, let's build a society where the first man can see the last man and the last man can see the first man. And nobody should have yachts worth hundreds of millions of pounds when other people uh, have their backside hanging out of their trousers and their children don't have enough to eat and their water is dirty and their uh, wife dies in childbirth. Let's have a more balanced and fair world. But that will require not just taking the yachts of Russians, not just expropriating the, the, the big mansions of Russians, the companies owned by Russians. That will require a wholly different uh, kind of society uh, to the one that we have got now, Chris, thanks for that. Not a great line, but a great call. And uh, Geraint Walters says, Mr. Galloway, I wanted to tell you I'm grateful beyond expression for the work you do. Yours and your team's relentless pursuit of truth and equality has shaped my 
adulthood in ways I'm eternally grateful for. Thank you, sir. The situation in Ukraine is a symptom of a greater global corruption that is endemic in our society. Our government has put the wealth of a few above all human life at the cost of millions in Iraq, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Palestine, to name but a few. They're ready to fight to the last drop of everyone else's blood. Blessings to all and a safe night to all of humanity. Amen. Thank you for that. Let's go to Zal in Edinburgh. Go ahead, Zal. Hi, hi, good evening, George. Pleasure to be in your show. Watch it every week and midweek Thank there you. as well. And I'm glad you've not Thank been you. put off air yet by the... We'll never be off air. We're not Russian state media. They can't stop us. We'll be back right, on Wednesday no. at 7 o'clock, Zal. Make sure no, you no, tune in on Wednesday. You don't worry, I'll watch it. George, just a couple of things. I agree with you a lot of things, but sometimes I, I don't agree. You make me laugh, you make me cry sometimes, and it's good to watch anyway. The thing about one of your callers, Simon, saying that the SNP hate the English or words to that effect, well, that's not true. I don't know why. I mean, you stand for democracy and things like that, and, you know, you're against the SNP, you've got your own party, which is good workers' party. It's probably better than the piece of wood Labour and the corrupt Tories. In fact, all of Westminster and London rule is Tory corrupt. And, and the fact is, we're lucky we've got the SNP here because after Blair, Labour was finished, right? And, well, you know, after Maggie Thatcher, the Tories were done here. So, uh, you know, I wish you could say, well, I don't like the SNP or Nicola Sturgeon or independence, but, you know, I'll have the respect for the, the, the people of Scotland to vote on, on that when it comes, you know, that... that well, the people that are, the problem, the problem for you, Zal, is the people of Scotland uh -huh. already voted. The people of Scotland voted yes. in a once-in-a-lifetime or a once-in-a-generation yeah, referendum. But, it but, was but, the, let me finish, let me finish. It was the biggest turnout in any vote in the entire history of democracy in Scotland. Well over 80% of the people voted. They voted decisively 55 to 45, which you'll recall was exactly the number that I predicted on Andrew Neil's BBC show on the Sunday before polling day uh, on the Thursday. So I won a lot of money on that, Zal. That's how I remember that we've actually already voted. Now, we can't keep reopening this issue. We can't stay on a hamster wheel where everything is about whether or not we have another vote. And then, of course, if my side won it, Zal, if my side won it, you'd be agitating for a third and then a fourth and then a fifth referendum. Sorry, mate, uh, and thanks for the kind words uh, that you spoke. Now, uh, I've got so many social media posts, I can't get to them, because I've virtually run out of time. But the good news is twofold. First, I'll be back again on Wednesday at 7 p.m. with Moats Extra. Don't miss it. 
And secondly, that Kenny and Acton, who's a legend, is on the line and here now. Go ahead, Ken. Hello, George. Hi. Good to hear just, from you again. Hi, you too, man. I'm currently in quarantine in an American biolab in Whitechapel for a clinical trial for the flu vaccine. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's big and of you. Brave of you. Yeah. And for only two weeks' work, they're going to pay me three and a half grand. That's not bad. Eh? Well, yeah, at least you're being compensated for it. But does that mean you've got to you've got to get the flu? Yeah, they're going to inject me with the flu tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not. Well, you need you need to be hard up for the three grand <laughs> to, know, to volunteer I'm, to get I'm lucky, the flu. I'm lucky. Kenny. I've got a strong immune system. Yeah. And but what if you don't I, get what if you don't get the flu? Will you still get the money? Yeah. Yeah. Kenny, yeah, you're yeah, a real okay. Scotsman. You're a no. real Scotsman. Only a Scotsman would volunteer to get the flu for for three grand. Kenny, get well soon. God bless you. And thank you very much indeed for getting that call in. Alas, uh, although it's been marvelous for me. And I hope it was marvellous for you. We really have run out of time. But the good news is we'll be back on Wednesday at the same time, same place. Join me then for Moats Extra. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 